Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. First, we will be discussing articles and name. Petiserin Treatment in Patients with Transthyroidin Cardiac Amyloidosis Background Transthyroidin amyloidosis, also called ATTR amyloidosis, is associated with accumulation of ATTR amyloid deposits in the heart and commonly manifests as progressive cardiomyopathy. Petiserin, an RNA interference therapeutic agent, inhibits the production of hepatic transthyroidin. Methods In this phase 3, double-blind, randomized trial, we assign patients with hereditary, also known as variant, or wild-type ATTR cardiac amyloidosis, in a 1-to-1 ratio, to receive petiserin, 0.3 mg per kilogram of body weight, or placebo once every 3 weeks for 12 months. A hierarchical procedure was used to test the primary and three secondary endpoints. The primary endpoint was the change from baseline in the distance covered on the 6-minute walk test at 12 months. The first secondary endpoint was the change from baseline to month 12 in the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Overall Summary, KCCQOS, score, with higher scores indicating better health status. The second secondary endpoint was a composite of death from any cause, cardiovascular events, and change from baseline in the 6-minute walk test distance over 12 months. The third secondary endpoint was a composite of death from any cause, hospitalizations for any cause, and urgent heart failure visits over 12 months. Results A total of 360 patients were randomly assigned to receive Petisaran, 181 patients, or placebo, 179 patients. At month 12, the decline in the 6-minute walk distance was lower in the Petisaran group than in the placebo group. Hodges-Lehman estimate of median difference, 14.69 meters. 95% confidence interval, C, 0.69 to 28.69, P equals 0.02, the KCCQ OS score increased in the Petisaran group, and declined in the placebo group, least squares mean difference, 3.7 points, 95% C, 0.2 to 7.2, P equals 0.04. Significant benefits were not observed for the second secondary endpoint. Infusion-related reactions, arthralgia, and muscle spasms occurred more often among patients in the Batisaran group than among those in the placebo group. Conclusions In this trial, administration of Batisaran over a period of 12 months resulted in preserved Next article Automated Insulin Delivery in Women with Pregnancy Complicated by Type 1 Diabetes Background Hybrid closed-loop insulin therapy has shown promise for management of type 1 diabetes during pregnancy, however, its efficacy is unclear. Methods 
In this multi-center, controlled trial, we randomly assigned pregnant women with type 1 diabetes and a glycated hemoglobin level of at least 6.5% at 9 sites in the United Kingdom to receive standard insulin therapy or hybrid closed-loop therapy, with both groups using continuous glucose monitoring. The primary outcome was the percentage of time in the pregnancy-specific target glucose range, 63 to 140 mg per deciliter, 3.5 to 7.8 millimoles per liter, as measured by continuous glucose monitoring from 16 weeks gestation until delivery. Analyses were performed according to the intention-to-treat principle. Key secondary outcomes were the percentage of time spent in a hyperglycemic state, glucose level greater than 140 mg per deciliter, overnight time in the target range, the glycated hemoglobin level, and safety events. Results A total of 124 participants with a mean, plus or minus, age of 31.1 plus or minus 5.3 years, and a mean baseline glycated hemoglobin level of 7.7 plus or minus 1. 2% underwent randomization. The mean percentage of time that the maternal glucose level was in the target range was 68.2 plus or minus 10. 5% in the closed-loop group and 55.6 plus or minus 12. 5% in the standard care group, mean adjusted difference, 10.5 percentage points, 95% confidence interval, C, 7.0 to 14.0, P less than 0.001. Results for the secondary outcomes were consistent with those of the primary outcome. Participants in the closed-loop group spent less time in a hyperglycemic state than those in the standard care group. Difference, minus 10.2 percentage points, 95% C, minus 13.8 to minus 6.6, had more overnight time in the target range. Difference, 12.3 percentage points, 95% C, 8.3 to 16.2, and had lower glycated hemoglobin levels, difference, minus 0.31 percentage points, 95% C, minus 0.50 to minus 0.12. Little time was spent in a hypoglycemic state. No unanticipated safety problems associated with the use of closed-loop therapy during pregnancy occurred, six instances of severe hypoglycemia versus 5 in the standard care group, 1 instance of diabetic ketoacidosis in each group, and 12 device-related adverse events in the closed-loop group, 7 related to closed-loop therapy. Conclusions Hybrid closed-loop therapy significantly improved maternal glycemic control during pregnancy complicated by type 1 diabetes. Next article. Phase 3 trial of nemalizumab in patients with Perigo nodularis. Background. Perigo nodularis is a chronic, debilitating, and severely pruritic neuroimmunologic skin disease. Nemalizumab, an interleukin-31 receptor alpha antagonist, downregulates key pathways in the pathogenesis of Perigo nodularis. Methods. In this phase 3, double-blind, multicenter, randomized trial, we assigned adults with moderate to severe perigo nodularis to receive an initial 60 mg dose of nemalizumab followed by subcutaneous injections of 30 mg or 60 mg, depending on baseline weight, every 4 weeks for 16 weeks or matching placebo. The primary endpoints were an ish response, a reduction of greater than or equal to 4 points on the peak pruritus numerical rating scale, PPNRS, scores range from 0 to 10, with higher scores indicating more severe itch 
and an investigator's global assessment, IGA, response, a score of 0, clear or 1, almost clear, on the IGA, scores range from 0 to 4, and a reduction from baseline to week 16 of greater than or equal to 2 points. There were 5 key secondary endpoints. Results A total of 274 patients underwent randomization, 183 were assigned to the nemalizumab group, and 91 to the placebo group. Treatment efficacy was shown with respect to both primary endpoints at week 16, a greater percentage of patients in the nemalizumab group than in the placebo group had an itch response, 56.3% versus 20.9%, strata-adjusted difference, 37.4 percentage points, 95% confidence interval, c, 26.3 to 48.5, and a greater percentage in the nemalizumab group had an IgA response. 37.7% versus 11.0%, strata-adjusted difference, 28.5 percentage points, 95% C, 18.8-38.2, P less than 0.001 for both comparisons. Benefits were observed for the five key secondary endpoints, itch response at week 4, 41.0% versus 7.7%, PPNRS score of less than 2 at week 4, 19.7% versus 2.2%, and week 16, 35.0% versus 7.7%, and an improvement of 4 or more points on the sleep disturbance numerical rating scale, range, 0, no sleep loss, to 10, unable to sleep at all, at week 4, 37.2% versus 9.9%, and week 16, 51.9% versus 20.9%, P less than 0.001 for all comparisons. The most common individual adverse events were headache, 6.6% versus 4.4%, and atopic dermatitis, 5.5% versus 0%. Conclusions Nemalizumab monotherapy significantly reduced the signs and symptoms of parigo nodularis. Next article, Convalescent Plasma for COVID-19-Induced ARDS in Mechanically Ventilated Patients Background Passive immunization with plasma collected from convalescent patients has been regularly used to treat coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. Minimal data are available regarding the use of convalescent plasma in patients with COVID-19-induced acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. Methods In this open-label trial, We randomly assigned adult patients with COVID-19-induced ARDS who had been receiving invasive mechanical ventilation for less than 5 days in a 1-to-1 ratio to receive either convalescent plasma with a neutralizing antibody titer of at least 1-to-320 or standard care alone. Randomization was stratified according to the time from tracheal intubation to inclusion. The primary outcome was death by day 28. Results A total of 475 patients underwent randomization from September 2020 through March 2022. Overall, 237 patients were assigned to receive convalescent plasma and 238 to receive standard care. Owing to a shortage of convalescent plasma, a neutralizing antibody titer of 1 to 160 was administered to 17.7% of the patients in the convalescent plasma group. Glucocorticoids were administered to 466 patients, 98.1%. At day 28, 
mortality was 35.4% in the convalescent plasma group and 45.0% in the standard care group, p equals 0.03. In a pre-specified analysis, this effect was observed mainly in patients who underwent randomization 48 hours or less after the initiation of invasive mechanical ventilation. Serious adverse events did not differ substantially between the two groups. Conclusions The administration of plasma collected from convalescent donors with a neutralizing antibody titer of at least 1 to 160 to patients with COVID-19-induced ARDS within 5 days after the initiation of invasive mechanical ventilation significantly reduced mortality day 28. This effect was mainly observed in patients who underwent randomization 48 hours or less after ventilation initiation. Next article from JAMA. Pharmacy e-prescription dispensing before and after cancel Rx implementation. Importance An estimated 1.5% to nearly 5% of medications are dispensed after discontinuation in the electronic health record, EHR, with 34% meeting criteria for high risk of potential harm. Objective to evaluate the association of the implementation of e-prescription cancellation messaging, cancel Rx, with medication dispensing after discontinuation of e-prescriptions in the EHR. Design, setting, and participants This case series with interrupted time series analysis included patients who had at least one medication e-prescribed in ambulatory care to a health system pharmacy and discontinued in the two-year study period from one year prior to approximately one year after cancel Rx implementation, January 15, 2018, to December 7, 2019. Prior to cancel Rx implementation, changes to e-prescribed medications within the EHR were not electronically communicated to health system pharmacies, which use separate pharmacy management software. Statistical analysis was performed from November 2020 to June 2023, primary analysis from March 2021 to May 2022. Exposure implementation of cancel Rx Main outcomes and measures the primary outcome was the proportion of e-prescribed medications dispensed and sold to patients by pharmacies within six months after discontinuation in the EHR. A medication was defined as dispensed after discontinuation if the timestamp of dispensing was at least one minute and less than six months after the timestamp of discontinuation in the EHR. A secondary outcome was the proportion of discontinued medications that was reordered within 120 days. Results a total of 53,298 qualifying e-prescriptions that were discontinued were identified for 17,451 unique patients, mean, SD, age, 50.6, 18.2, years, 9,332 women, 53.5%. After cancel Rx implementation, 22,443, 85.9%, of the 26,127 discontinued e-prescriptions resulted in a cancel Rx transaction. In interrupted time series analysis, the proportion of prescriptions dispensed after discontinuation decreased from a baseline of 8.0%, 2,162 of 27,171, to 1.4%, 369 of 26,127, p less than 0.001, without a significant week-to-week trend, Beta equals 0.000158, P equals 0.37. Conclusions and relevance in this case series with interrupted time series analysis, 
Findings suggest that CancelRx implementation was associated with an immediate and persistent reduction in the proportion of e-prescriptions sold after discontinuation in the EHR. Widespread implementation of CancelRx may significantly improve medication safety through the reduction of medication dispensing after discontinuation by prescribers. Next article. Defining usual oral temperature ranges in outpatients using an unsupervised learning algorithm. Importance Although oral temperature is commonly assessed in medical examinations, the range of usual or normal temperature is poorly defined. Objective to determine normal oral temperature ranges by age, sex, height, weight, and time of day. Design, setting, and participants This cross-sectional study used clinical visit information from the divisions of internal medicine and family medicine in a single large medical care system. All adult outpatient encounters that included temperature measurements from April 28, 2008, through June 4, 2017, were eligible for inclusion. The limit, laboratory information mining for individualized thresholds, filtering algorithm was applied to iteratively remove encounters with primary diagnoses overrepresented in the tails of the temperature distribution, leaving only those diagnoses unrelated to temperature. Mixed effects modeling was applied to the remaining temperature measurements to identify independent factors associated with normal oral temperature and to generate individualized normal temperature ranges. Data were analyzed from July 5, 2017, to June 23, 2023. Exposures Primary Diagnoses and Medications, Age, Sex, Height, Weight, Time of Day, and Month, Abstracted from Each Outpatient Encounter. Main Outcomes and Measures Normal Temperature Ranges by Age, Sex, Height, Weight, and Time of Day. Results of 618-306 Patient Encounters, 35.92% were removed by limit because they included diagnoses or medications that fell disproportionately in the tails of the temperature distribution. The encounters removed due to overrepresentation in the upper tail were primarily linked to infectious diseases, 76.81% of all removed encounters. Type 2 diabetes was the only diagnosis removed for overrepresentation in the lower tail, 15.71% of all removed encounters. The 396-195 encounters included in the analysis set consisted of 126-705 patients, 57.35% women, mean SD, age, 52.7, 15.9, years. Prior to running limit, the mean SD, overall oral temperature was 36.71 degrees Celsius, 0.43 degrees Celsius, following limit. The mean SD temperature was 36.64 degrees Celsius, 0.35 degrees Celsius. Using mixed effects modeling, age, sex, height, weight, and time of day accounted for 6.86% overall, and up to 25.52% per patient of the observed variability in temperature. Mean normal oral temperature did not reach 37 degrees Celsius for any subgroup. The upper 99th percentile ranged from 36.81 degrees Celsius, a tall man with underweight aged 80 years at 8 a.m., to 37.88 degrees Celsius, a short woman with obesity aged 20 years at 2 p.m. Conclusions and relevance The findings of this cross-sectional study suggest that normal oral temperature varies in an expected manner based on sex, age, height, weight, and time of day, allowing individualized normal temperature ranges to be established. 
The clinical significance of a value outside of the usual range is an area for future study. Next article Cardiac Arrest Survival at Emergency Medical Service Agencies in Catchment Areas with Primarily Black and Hispanic Populations Objective to examine whether EMS agencies serving catchment areas with primarily Black and Hispanic populations, Black and Hispanic catchment areas, have different rates of OCA survival than agencies serving catchment areas with primarily White populations, White catchment areas. Design, setting, and participants A cohort study including adults with non-traumatic OCA from January 1, 2015, to December 31, 2019, in the Cardiac Arrest Registry to Enhance Survival was conducted. Data analysis was conducted from August 17, 2022, to July 7, 2023. Exposure Emergency Medical Service Agencies, categorized as working in catchment areas where the combination of Black and Hispanic residents made up more than 50% of the population or where white residents made up more than 50% of the population. Main outcomes and measures the unit of analysis was the EMS agency. The primary outcome was agency-level risk standardized survival rates, RSSRs, to hospital admission for OCA at each EMS agency, which were calculated using hierarchical logistic regression and compared between agencies serving Black and Hispanic and white catchment areas. Whether differences in OCA survival were explained by EMS and first responder measures was evaluated with additional adjustment for these factors. Results among 764 EMS agencies representing 258-342 OCAs, 82 EMS agencies, 10.7%, had a Black and Hispanic catchment area. Overall median age of the patients was 63.0, IQR, 52.0 to 75.0, years, 36.1% were women, and 63.9% were men. Overall, the mean, SD, RSSR was 27.5%, 3.6%, with lower survival at EMS agencies with Black and Hispanic catchment areas, 25.8%, 3.6%, compared with agencies with white catchment areas, 27.7%, 3.5%, p less than 0.001. Among the 82 EMS agencies with Black and Hispanic catchment areas, a disproportionately higher number, 32, 39.0%, was in the lowest survival quartile, whereas a lower number, 12, 14.6%, was in the highest survival quartile. Additional adjustment for EMS response times, EMS termination of resuscitation rates, and first responder rates of initiating cardiopulmonary resuscitation or applying an automated external defibrillator before EMS arrival did not meaningfully attenuate differences in RSSRs between the agencies with Black and Hispanic compared with white catchment areas, mean, SD, RSSRs after adjustment, 25.9%, 3.3%, versus 27.7%, 3.1%, p less than 0.001. Conclusions and relevance risk standardized survival rates for OCA were 1.9% lower at EMS agencies working in Black and Hispanic catchment areas than in white catchment areas. This difference was not explained by EMS response times, rates of EMS termination of resuscitation, or first responder rates of initiating cardiopulmonary resuscitation or applying an automated external defibrillator.
Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Risk for congenital anomalies in children conceived with medically assisted fertility treatment. Background. More than 2 million children are conceived annually using assisted reproductive technologies, arts, with a similar number conceived using ovulation induction and intrauterine insemination, oi oi. Previous studies suggest that art-conceived children are at increased risk for congenital anomalies, CAs. However, the role of underlying infertility in this risk remains unclear, and art clinical and laboratory practices have changed drastically over time, particularly there has been an increase in intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI, and cryopreservation. Objective to investigate the role of underlying infertility and fertility treatment on CA risks in the first two years of life. Design. Propensity score weighted population-based cohort study. Setting. New South Wales, Australia. Participants. 851-984 infants, 828-099 singletons and 23-885 plural children, delivered between 2009 and 2017. Measurements. Adjusted risk difference, ARD in CAs of infants conceived through fertility treatment compared with two naturally conceived, NC, control groups, those with and without a parental history of infertility, NC infertile and NC fertile. Results. The overall incidence of CAs was 459 per 10 000 singleton births and 757 per 10 000 plural births. Compared with NC fertile singleton control infants, N equals 747018, art conceived singleton infants, N equals 31256, had an elevated risk for major genitourinary abnormalities, ARD, 19.0 cases per 10 000 births, 95% C, 2.3 to 35.6, the risk remained unchanged, ARD, 22 cases per 10 000 births, C, 4.6 to 39.4. When compared with NC infertile singleton control infants, N equals 36251 that is, after accounting for parental infertility, indicating that ART remained an independent risk. After accounting for parental infertility, IXI in couples without male infertility was associated with an increased risk for major genitourinary abnormalities, ARD, 47.8 cases per 10 000 singleton births, C, 12.6 to 83.1. There was some suggestion of increased risk for CAs after fresh embryo transfer, although estimates were imprecise and inconsistent. There were no increased risks for CAs among oi oi conceived infants, N equals 13,574. Limitations This study measured the risk for CAs only in those children who were born at or after 20 weeks gestation. Observational study design precludes causal inference. Many estimates were imprecise. Conclusion. Patients should be counseled on the small increased risk for genitourinary abnormalities after ART, particularly after IXI, which should be avoided in couples without problems of male infertility. Next article association between vascular 18F fluorodeoxyglucose uptake at diagnosis and change in aortic dimensions in giant cell arteritis. Background. Previous studies have shown that patients with giant cell arteritis, GCA, who have vascular 18F fluorodeoxyglucose, FDG, uptake at diagnosis are at increased risk for thoracic aortic complications. 
Objective To measure the association between vascular FDG uptake at diagnosis and the change in aortic dimensions. Design Prospective Cohort Study Setting University Hospitals Leuven Patients 106 patients with GCA and FDG positron emission tomography, PEG, imaging three days or less after initiation of glucocorticoids. Measurements. Patients had PET and computed tomography, CT, imaging at diagnosis and CT imaging yearly for a maximum of 10 years. The PET scans were scored 0 to 3 in 7 vascular areas and summed to a total vascular score, TVS. The PET scan results were positive when FDG uptake was grade 2 or greater in any large vessel. The association between vascular FDG uptake and aortic dimensions was estimated by linear mixed effects models with random intercept and slope. Results When compared with patients with a negative PET scan result, those with a positive scan result had a greater increase in the diameter of the ascending aorta, difference in 5-year progression, 1.58 mm, 95% C, 0.41 to 2.74 mm, the diameter of the descending aorta, 1.32 mm, C, 0.38 to 2.26 mm, and the volume of the thoracic aorta, 20.5 cubic centimeters, C, 4.5 to 36.5 cubic centimeters. These thoracic aortic dimensions were also positively associated with TVs. Patients with a positive PET scan result had a higher risk for thoracic aortic aneurysms, adjusted hazard ratio, 10.21, C, 1.25 to 83.3. Limitation The lengthy inclusion and follow-up period resulted in missing data and the use of different PET machines. Conclusion Higher TVs was associated with greater yearly increase in thoracic aortic dimensions. Performing PET imaging at diagnosis may help to estimate the risk for aortic aneurysm formation. Next article from Lancet. Intermediate endpoints as surrogates for outcomes in cancer immunotherapy, a systematic review and meta-analysis of phase 3 trials. Background. Cancer immunotherapy shows unique efficacy kinetics that differs from conventional treatment. These characteristics may lead to the prolongation of trial duration, hence reliable surrogate endpoints are urgently needed. We aim to systematically evaluate the study-level performance of commonly reported intermediate clinical endpoints for surrogacy in cancer immunotherapy. Methods We searched the Embase, PubMed, and Cochrane databases, between database inception and October 18, 2022, for Phase three randomized trials investigating the efficacy of immunotherapy in patients with advanced solid tumors. An updated search was done on July 15, 2023. No language restrictions were used. Eligible trials had to set overall survival, OS, as the primary or co-primary endpoint and report at least one intermediate clinical endpoint including objective response rate, ORR, disease control rate, DCR, progression-free survival, PFS, and one-year overall survival. Other key inclusion and exclusion criteria included, 1. Adult patients, greater than 18 years old, with advanced solid tumor. 2. No immunotherapy conducted in the control arms. 3. Follow-up is long enough to achieve OS4, data should be public available. 
A two-stage meta-analytic approach was conducted to evaluate the magnitude of the association between these intermediate endpoints and OS. A surrogate was identified if the coefficient of determination, R2, was 0.7 or greater. Leave one out cross-validation and predefined subgroup analysis were conducted to examine the heterogeneity. Potential publication bias was evaluated using the Eggers and Beggs tests. This trial was registered with Prospero, number CRD 420223816488. Findings 52,342 patients with 15 types of tumors from 77 phase 3 studies were included. ORR, 2 South African RAND equals 0.11, 95% C, 0.00 to 0.24, DCR, 2 South African RAND equals 0.01, 95% C, 0.00 to 0.01, and PFS, 2 South African RAND equals 0.40. 95% C, 0.23 to 0.56, showed weak associations with OS. However, a strong correlation was observed between one-year survival and clinical outcome, 2 South African RAND equals 0.74, 95% C, 0.64 to 0.83. These associations remained relatively consistent across predefined subgroups stratified based on tumor types, masking methods, line of treatments, drug targets, treatment strategies, and follow-up durations. No significant heterogeneities or publication bias were identified. Interpretation One-year milestone survival was the only identified surrogacy endpoint for outcomes in cancer immunotherapy. Ongoing investigations and development of new endpoints and incorporation of biomarkers are needed to identify potential surrogate markers that can be more robust than one-year survival. This work may provide important references in assisting the design and interpretation of future clinical trials, and constitute complementary information in drafting clinical practice guidelines. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation improves outcome in myelodysplastic syndrome across high-risk genetic subgroups, Genetic Analysis of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network 1102 Study Purpose Allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation, HCT, in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, MDS, improves overall survival, OS. We evaluated the impact of MDS genetics on the benefit of HCT in a biological assignment, donor v. no donor, study. Methods We performed targeted sequencing in 309 patients aged 50 to 75 years with International Prognostic Scoring System, IPSS, Intermediate 2 or High-Risk MDS, enrolled in the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network 1102 study and assessed the association of gene mutations with OS. Patients with TP53 mutations were classified as TP53 multi-hit if two alleles were altered, via point mutation, deletion, or copy-neutral loss of heterozygosity. Results The distribution of gene mutations was similar in the donor and no-donor arms, with TP53, 28% v 29%, P equals 0.89, ASXL1, 23% v 29%, P equals 0.37, and SRSF2, 16% v16%, p equals 0.99, being most common. 
OS in patients with a TP53 mutation was worse compared with patients without TP53 mutation, 21% plus or minus 5%, SE, V52% plus or minus 4% at 3 years, P less than 0.001. Among those with a TP53 mutation, OS was similar between TP53 single versus TP53 multi-hit, 22% plus or minus 8% V20% plus or minus 6% at 3 years, P equals 0.31. Considering HCT as a time-dependent covariate, patients with a TP53 mutation who underwent HCT had improved OS compared with non-HCT treatment, OS at 3 years, 23% plus or minus 7% V11% plus or minus 7%, P equals 0.04, associated with a hazard ratio of 3.89, 95% C, 1.87 to 8.12, P less than 0.001 after adjustment for covariates. OS among patients with molecular IPSS, IPSSM, very high risk without a TP53 mutation was significantly improved if they had a donor, 68% plus or minus 10% B0% plus or minus 12% at 3 years, P equals 0.001. Conclusion HCT improved OS compared with non-HCT treatment in patients with TP53 mutations irrespective of TP53 allelic status. Patients with IPSS and very high risk without a TP53 mutation had favorable outcomes when a donor was available. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology. Blood test increases colorectal cancer screening in persons who declined colonoscopy and fecal immunochemical test. Background and aims. The Septin-9 blood test is indicated for colorectal cancer screening in individuals who decline first-line tests, but participation in this context is unclear. We conducted a randomized controlled trial to compare reoffering colonoscopy and fecal immunochemical test, FIT, alone versus also offering the blood test among individuals who declined colonoscopy and FIT. Methods Screen-eligible veterans aged 50 to 75 years who declined colonoscopy and FIT within the previous six months were randomized to letter and telephone outreach to reoffer screening with colonoscopy slash FIT only, control, or additionally offering the blood test as a second-line option, intervention. The primary outcome was completion of any screening test within six months. The secondary outcome was completion of a full screening strategy within six months, including colonoscopy for those with a positive non-invasive test. Results Of 359 participants who completed follow-up, 9.6% in the control group, and 17.1% in the intervention group completed any screening, 7.5% difference, P equals 0.035. Uptake of colonoscopy and FIT was similar in the two groups. The full screening strategy was completed in 9.0% and 14.9% in the control and intervention groups, respectively, 5.9% difference, P equals 0.084. Conclusions Among individuals who previously declined colonoscopy and FIT, offering a blood test as a secondary option increased screening by 7.5% without decreasing uptake of first-line screening options. However, completion of a full screening strategy did not increase. These findings indicate that a blood test is a promising method to improve colorectal cancer screening, but obtaining a timely colonoscopy after a positive non-invasive test remains a challenge. (laughs) 
Next article from Hepatology. Tropofexor plus Senecrevirac combination versus monotherapy in non-alcoholics hepatitis results from the Phase 2B tandem study. Background and aims. With distinct mechanisms of action, the combination of Tropofexor, TXR, and Senecrevirac, CBC, may provide an effective treatment for NASH. This randomized, multi-center, double-blind, Phase 2B study assessed the safety and efficacy of TXR and CVC combination, compared with respective monotherapies. Approach and results. Patients, N equals 193, were randomized 1 to 1 colon 1 to 1 to 1 daily TXR 140G, TXR 140, CVC 150 mg, CVC, TXR 140G plus CVC 150 mg, TXR 140 plus CVC, or TXR 90G plus CVC 150 mg, TXR 90 plus CVC, for 48 weeks. The primary and secondary endpoints were safety and histological improvement, respectively. Rates of adverse events, A's, were similar across treatment groups. Pruritus was the most frequently experienced A, with highest incidence in the TXR 140 group, 40.0%. In TXR in combination groups, Alanine aminotransferase, ALT, decreased from baseline to 48 weeks, geometric mean change, minus 21%, TXR 140, minus 16%, TXR 140 plus CVC, minus 13%, TXR 90 plus CVC, and plus 17%, CVC. Reductions in body weight observed at week 24, mean changes from baseline, TXR 140, minus 2.5 kilograms, TXR 140 plus CVC, minus 1.7 kilograms, TXR 90 plus CVC, minus 1.0 kilograms, and CVC, minus 0.1 kilograms, were sustained a week 48. At least one point improvement in fibrosis stage slash steatohepatitis resolution without worsening of fibrosis was observed in 32.3% slash 25.8%, 31.6% slash 15.8%, 29.7% slash 13.5% and 32.5% slash 22.5% of patients in the TXR 140, CVC, TXR 140 plus CVC, and TXR 90 plus CVC groups, respectively. Conclusions The safety profile of TXR plus CVC combination was similar to respective monotherapies, with no new signals. TXR monotherapy showed sustained ALT and body weight decreases. No substantial incremental efficacy was observed with TXR plus CVC combination on ALT, body weight, or in histological endpoints compared with monotherapy. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases Sustained viral suppression with valutegravir monotherapy over 192 weeks in patients starting combination antiretroviral therapy during primary human immunodeficiency virus infection, early simplified, a randomized, controlled, multi-site, non-inferiority trial. Background Starting combination antiretroviral therapy, CART, during primary human immunodeficiency virus type 1, HIV-1, Infection results in a smaller HIV-1 latent reservoir, reduced immune activation, and less viral diversity compared to starting CART during chronic infection. 
We report results of a four-year study designed to determine whether these properties would allow sustained virological suppression after simplification of CART to dalutegravir, DTG, monotherapy. Methods Early simplified is a randomized, open-label, non-inferiority trial. People with HIV, PWH, who started CART less than 180 days after a documented primary HIV-1 infection with suppressed viral load were randomized, 2 to 1, to DTG monotherapy with 50 mg daily or continuation of CART. The primary endpoints were the proportion of PWH with viral failure at 48, 96, 144, and 192 weeks, non-inferiority margin was 10%. After 96 weeks, Randomization was lifted and patients were permitted to switch treatment groups as desired. Results Of 101 PWH randomized, 68 were assigned to DTG monotherapy and 33 to CART. At week 96 in the per-protocol population, 64 64-64, 100%, showed virological response in the DTG monotherapy group versus 30-30, 100%, in the CART group, difference, 0.00%. Upper bound of 95% confidence interval 6.22%. This demonstrated non inferiority of DTG monotherapy at the pre specified level. At week 192, the study end, no virological failure occurred in either group during 13,308 and 4,897 person weeks of follow up for the DTG monotherapy, and equals 80, and CART groups, respectively. Conclusions this trial suggests that early CART initiation during primary HIV infection allows sustained virological suppression after switching to DTG monotherapy. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases Interference between enteric viruses and live attenuated rotavirus vaccine virus in a healthy Australian birth cohort. Background Rotavirus vaccines have reduced effectiveness in high mortality settings. Interference between enteric viruses and live attenuated oral vaccine strains may be a factor. Methods In a birth cohort of healthy Australian infants, parents collected weekly stool samples. 381 paired swabs collected within 10 days of Rotatech vaccination from 140 infants were tested for 10 enteric viruses and Rotatech strains. Results Collectively, both ribonucleic acid and deoxyribonucleic acid viruses were negatively associated with Rotatech shedding, adjusted odds ratio equals 0.29, 95% confidence interval equals 0.14 to 0.58 and adjusted odds ratio equals 0.30, 95% confidence interval equals 0.11 to 0.78, respectively. Conclusions Enteric viruses may interfere with rototech replication in the gut and thus rototech stool shedding. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology Clinical Characteristics and Prognostic Value of Rho52-SSA Antibodies in Idiopathic Inflammatory Myopathies Background-slash-purpose Anti-Rho52 are myositis-associated antibodies found in idiopathic inflammatory myopathies, UMS. 
This chart review aims to evaluate the frequency, significance, and associated clinical characteristics of Rho52-SSA positivity in impatients. Methods We performed a chart review of impatients diagnosed between January 2006 and December 2020. All patients met either the 1975 Bohan and Peter or the European League Against Rheumatism slash American College of Rheumatology classification criteria for probable or definite myositis. Demographics, clinical and serologic parameters, treatments, and outcomes were compared in patients with anti-RO52-SSA antibodies and patients without anti-RO52-SSA antibodies. Results 189 patients with them were tested for either Rho52 or SSA, with 45 positive for Rho52-SSA, 23.8%. Patients with them and Rho52-SSA plus were younger at age at onset of disease, 44.8 versus 51.2 years, P equals 0.008. Rho52-SSA plus was more common in antisynthetic syndrome, P less than 0.001. Odds ratio or 4.44, 95% confidence interval, C, 2.11 to 9.33, and not frequently identified in clinically amniopathic dermatomyositis, CADM, P equals 0.02, or 0.13, 95% C, 0.02 to 0.96, or immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy, P equals 0.003, or 0.14. 95% C, 0.03 to 0.63. Of the extraskeletal muscle manifestations, interstitial lung disease, ILD, was strongly associated with Rho52 slash SSA plus, P less than 0.001, or 6.61, 95% C, 3.15 to 13.86, as was dysphagia, P equals 0.006, or 2.73. 95% C, 1.31 to 5.71. Interstitial lung disease pattern and pulmonary function testing impairment did not differ based on antibody status. There was no significant difference in outcomes between groups. Conclusion In this myositis cohort, Rho52-SSA plus was present in nearly one-fourth of the population and had a strong association with the antisynthetic syndrome subtype, ILD, and dysphagia. Although these disease manifestations are associated with significant morbidity, in our cohort, they were not associated with increased mortality or more severe ILD. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology Bone loss in inflammatory rheumatic musculoskeletal disease patients treated with low-dose glucocorticoids and prevention by anti-osteoporosis medications. Objective The negative effects of glucocorticoids on bone depend on dose and treatment duration. However, it is unclear whether a safe dose exists, especially for patients with inflammatory rheumatic musculoskeletal diseases, ERMS. We undertook this study to determine the effects of glucocorticoid doses on bone health in ERMD patients. Methods We conducted a longitudinal cohort study on women with ERMD. Bone mineral density, BMD, and fractures were assessed prospectively and compared to a matched cohort without ERMD. Kaplan-Meier curves with log-ranked tests were made for ERMD patients, stratified for glucocorticoid use and dose, and the matched cohort. 
Multivariable Cox regression survival models were also employed to analyze the effect of glucocorticoids on fracture. Results A total of 884 women with ERMD and 1,766 controls, match for age, T-score and 10-year fracture risk, were included in the study and followed up for up to 6 years. BMD decreased significantly in all patients receiving glucocorticoids who were not receiving anti-osteoporosis treatment, minus 4.26% for greater than or equal to 5 mg slash day of prednisone equivalent, P equals 0.0011, minus 4.23% for 2.5 to 5 mg slash day, P equals 0.0422, minus 2.66% for 0 to 2.5 mg slash day, P equals 0.0006. Anti-osteoporosis treatment, largely bisphosphonates, prevented bone loss only in patients receiving less than 5 mg slash day of prednisone equivalent. Fracture incidence was higher in patients with ERMD compared to controls, but only glucocorticoid doses greater than or equal to 5 mg slash day were associated with significantly higher risk of fracture. Conclusion Glucocorticoid doses as low as 2.5 mg slash day were associated with BMD loss in ERMD patients, but this effect was preventable. BMD loss in patients receiving greater than or equal to 5 mg slash day was not totally prevented by anti-osteoporosis medications currently used in clinical practice, resulting in higher risk of fracture. Next article from Circulation. Blood pressure and oxygen targets on kidney injury after cardiac arrest. Background. Acute kidney injury, AKI, represents a common and serious complication to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The importance of post-resuscitation care targets for blood pressure and oxygenation for the development of Aki is unknown. Methods. This is a sub-study of a randomized 2 by 2 factorial trial, in which 789 comatose adult patients who had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with presumed cardiac cause and sustained return of spontaneous circulation were randomly assigned to a target mean arterial blood pressure of either 63 or 77 mm Hg. Patients were simultaneously randomly assigned to either a restrictive oxygen target of a partial pressure of arterial oxygen, POW2, of 9 to 10 kPa or a liberal oxygenation target of a POW2 of 13 to 14 kPa. The primary outcome for this study was Aki according to Katigo, kidney disease, improving global outcomes, classification in patients surviving at least 48 hours, and equals 759. Adjusted logistic regression was performed for patients allocated to high blood pressure and liberal oxygen target as reference. Results the main population characteristics at admission were, age, 64, 54 to 73, years, 80% male, 90% shockable rhythm, and time to return of spontaneous circulation, 18, 12 to 26, minutes. Patients allocated to a low blood pressure and liberal oxygen target had an increased risk of developing Aki compared with patients with high blood pressure and liberal oxygen target, 84, 44%, versus 56187, 30%, adjusted odds ratio, 1.87, 95% C, 1.21 to 2.89. Multinomial logistic regression revealed that the increased risk of Aki was only related to mild stage Aki, Katigo stage 1. There was no difference in risk of Aki in the other groups.
Plasma creatinine remained high during hospitalization in the low blood pressure and liberal oxygen target group but did not differ between groups at 6 and 12 month follow-up. Conclusions In comatose patients who had been resuscitated after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, patients allocated to a combination of a low mean arterial blood pressure and a liberal oxygen target had a significantly increased risk of mild-stage Aki. No difference was found in terms of more severe Aki stages or other kidney-related adverse outcomes, and creatinine had normalized at one year after discharge. Next article from ACC Latest in Cardiology. Performance of the ACC-AHA pooled cohort cardiovascular risk equations in clinical practice. Background. The performance of the American College of Cardiology-American Heart Association pooled cohort equation, PCE, for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, ESCADE, in real-world clinical practice has not been evaluated extensively. Objectives. The goal of this study was to test the performance of PCE to predict escape risk in the community, and determine if including individuals with values outside the PCE range, E, age, blood pressure, cholesterol, or statin therapy initiation over follow-up would significantly affect PCE predictive capabilities. Methods The PCE was validated in a community-based cohort of consecutive patients who sought primary care in Olmsted County, Minnesota, between 1997 and 2000, followed up through 2016. Inclusion criteria were similar to those of PCE derivation. Patient information was ascertained by using the record linkage system of the Rochester Epidemiology Project. Escade events, non-fatal and fatal myocardial infarction and ischemic stroke, were validated in duplicate. Calculated and observed escade risk and C-statistics were compared across predefined groups. Results this study included 30,042 adults, with a mean age of 48.5 plus or minus 12.2 years, 46% were male. Median follow-up was 16.5 years, truncated at 10 years for this analysis. Mean escape risk was 5.6% plus or minus 8.73%. There were 1,555 escape events, 5.2%. The PCE revealed good performance overall, See statistic 0.78, and in sex and race subgroups, it was highest among non-white female subjects, see statistic 0.81, and lowest in white male subjects, see statistic 0.77. Out-of-range values and initiation of statin medication did not affect model performance. Conclusions The PCE performed well in a community cohort representing real-world clinical practice. Values outside PCE ranges and initiation of statin medication did not affect performance. These results have implications for the applicability of current strategies for the prevention of escape. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Heart Rate Variability and Incident Type 2 Diabetes in General Population Context Hyperglycemia and autonomic dysfunction are bidirectionally related. Objective We investigated the association of longitudinal evolution of heart rate variability, HRV, with incident type 2 diabetes, T2D, among the general population. Methods 
we included 7,630 participants, mean age 63.7 years, 58% women, from the population-based Rotterdam study who had no history of T2D and atrial fibrillation at baseline and had repeated HRV assessments at baseline and during follow-up. We used joint models to assess the association between longitudinal evolution of heart rate and different HRV metrics, including the heart rate corrected SD of the normal-to-normal RR intervals, SDNNC and root mean square of successive RR interval differences, RMSSTC, with incident T2D. Models were adjusted for cardiovascular risk factors. Bidirectional Mendelian randomization, MISTER, using summary level data was also performed. Results During a median follow-up of 8.6 years, 871 individuals developed incident T2D. 1SD increase in heart rate, hazard ratio, HR, 1.20, 95% C, 1.09 to 1.33, and log RMSSDC, HR 1.16, 95% C, 1.01 to 1.33, were independently associated with incident T2D. The HRs were 1.54, 95% C, 1.08 to 2.06, for participants younger than 62 years and 1.15, 95% C, 1.01 to 1.31, for those older than 62 years for heart rate. P for interaction less than 001. Results from bidirectional MISTER analyzes suggested that HRV and T2D were not significantly related to each other. Conclusion Autonomic dysfunction precedes development of T2D, especially among younger individuals, while MISTER analysis suggests no causal relationship. More studies are needed to further validate our findings. New findings on presentation and outcome of patients with adrenocortical cancer, results from a national cohort study. Context Because of the rarity of adrenocortical cancer, ACC, only a few population-based studies are available, and they reported limited details in the characterization of patients and their treatment. Objective To describe in a nationwide cohort the presentation of patients with ACC, treatment strategies, and potential prognostic factors. Methods Retrospective analysis of 512 patients with ACC, diagnosed in 12 referral centers in Italy from January 1990 to June 2018. Results ACC diagnosed as incidentalomas accounted for overall 38.1% of cases, with a frequency that increases with age and with less aggressive pathological features than symptomatic tumors. Women, 60.2%, were younger than men and had smaller tumors, which more frequently secreted hormones. Surgery was mainly done with an open approach, 72%, and after surgical resection, 62.7% of patients started adjuvant mitotane therapy. Recurrence after tumor resection occurred in 56.2% of patients. In patients with localized disease, cortisol secretion, in SAT stage 3, key 67%, and Y-score were associated with an increased risk of recurrence, whereas margin-free resection, open surgery, and adjuvant mitotane treatment were associated with reduced risk. Death occurred in 38.1% of patients and recurrence-free survival, RFS, predicted overall survival, OS. In localized disease, age, cortisol secretion, key 67%, 
INSAT stage 3 and recurrence were associated with increased risk of mortality. ACC's presenting as adrenal incidentalomas showed prolonged RFS and OS. Conclusion Our study shows that ACC is a sex-related disease and demonstrates that an incidental presentation is associated with a better outcome. Given the correlation between RFS and OS, RFS may be used as a surrogate endpoint in clinical studies. Next article from Neurology. Randomized trial comparing low versus high dose 4 dexamethasone for patients with moderate to severe migraine. Background and objectives Dexamethasone decreases the frequency of migraine recurrence after emergency department, ED, discharge. However, the optimal dose of dexamethasone is unknown. We hypothesize that dexamethasone 16 mg 4 would allow greater rates of sustained headache relief than 4 mg when co-administered with metoclopramide 10 mg 4. Methods This was a randomized double-blind study. Adults who presented with a headache meeting International Classification of Headache Disorders, 3rd edition, migraine criteria were eligible if they rated the headache as moderate or severe in intensity. Pain intensity was assessed for up to 2 hours in the ED and through telephone 48 hours and 7 days later. The primary outcome was sustained headache relief. Secondary outcomes included headache relief within 2 hours and the number of headache days during the subsequent week. Relying on a priori criteria, the Data Safety Monitoring Committee recommended halting the study early for futility. Results A total of 1,823 patients were screened, and 209 patients were randomized. The mean age was 38 years, SD 11. 179 of 209, 86%, identified as women. 151 of 209, 72%, of the population reported severe intensity, the rest reported moderate. 35 of 102, 34%, participants in the metoclopramide plus 4 mg arm achieved sustained headache relief as did 42 102, 41%, participants in the metoclopramide plus 16 mg arm, absolute difference 7%, 95% C-6% to 20%. Headache relief within 2 hours occurred in 77104, 74%, low dose and 82105, 78%, high dose participants, absolute difference 4%, 95% C-8% to 16%. During the week after ED discharge, Low-dose participants reported a median of two headache days, 25th, 75th percentile 1, 5. In the high-dose arm, this was also 2, 25th, 75th percentile 0, 4. Mean difference 0.4, 95% 0.3 to 1.2. Discussion when added to 10 mg 4 metoclopramide, doses of dexamethasone greater than 4 mg are unlikely to benefit patients in the ED with migraine. Next article from CHEST. The effect of inhaled corticosteroids on pneumonia risk in patients with COPD bronchiectasis overlap. Background. Inhaled corticosteroids, ICS, increase the risk of pneumonia in COPD and commonly are used in patients with COPD bronchiectasis overlap. Research question. Is the risk of pneumonia associated with ICS further heightened in COPD bronchiectasis? Study design and methods. 
Electronic health care records, from 2004 to 2019, were used to obtain a cohort of patients with COPD and a nested case control group, age and sex match 1 to 4. Analyzes were conducted to determine the risk of hospitalization for pneumonia in COPD associated with ICS use in those with bronchiectasis. Findings were confirmed by several sensitivity analyzes. Additionally, a smaller nested case control group containing only patients with COPD bronchiectasis overlap and those with recent blood eosinophil counts, BECs, was used to determine an E association with BEC. Results 316,663 patients were eligible for the COPD cohort, bronchiectasis significantly increased the risk of pneumonia, adjusted hazard ratio, 1.24, 95% C, 1.15 to 1.33. In the first nested case control group of 84,316 patients with COPD, ICS was found to increase the odds of pneumonia, adjusted or, AOR, 1.26, 95% C, 1.19 to 1.32, only if used in the previous 180 days. However, bronchiectasis was a significant modifier such that ICS use did not augment further the already elevated bronchiectasis-associated pneumonia risk, COPD bronchiectasis, AOR, 1.01, 95% C, 0.8 to 1.28, no bronchiectasis, AOR, 1.27, 95% C, 1.20 to 1.34. Several sensitivity analyzes and a second smaller nested case control group confirmed these findings. Finally, we found that Beck modified the ICS-associated pneumonia risk and COPD bronchiectasis overlap, where lower Beck was associated significantly with pneumonia, Beck less than or equal to 3 times 109-L, AOR, 1.56, 95% C, 1.05 to 2.31, BEC greater than 3 times 109-L, AOR, 0.89, 95% C, 0.53 to 1.24. Interpretation ICS use does not augment further the already increased risk of hospitalization for pneumonia associated with concomitant bronchiectasis in patients with COPD. Lifestyle, genetic susceptibility, and the risk of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Background Lifestyle is an important contributor of age related chronic disease, but the association between lifestyle and the risk of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, IPF, remains unknown. The extent to which genetic susceptibility modifies the effects of lifestyle on IPF also remains unclear. Research question is there a joint effect or interaction of lifestyle and genetic susceptibility on the risk of developing IPF? Study Design and Methods This study included 407,615 participants from the UK Biobank study. A lifestyle score and a polygenic risk score were constructed separately for each participant. Participants were then classified into three lifestyle categories and three genetic risk categories based on the corresponding score. Cox models were fitted to assess the association of lifestyle and genetic risk with the risk of incident IPF. Results With favorable lifestyle as the reference group, intermediate lifestyle, hazard ratio, 1.384, 95% C, 1.218 to 1.574, and unfavorable lifestyle, hazard ratio, 2.271, 95% C, 
95% C, 1.852-2.785, were significantly associated with an increased risk of IPF. For the combined effect of lifestyle and polygenic risk score, participants with unfavorable lifestyle and high genetic risk had the highest risk of IPF, hazard ratio, 7.796, 95% C, 5.482-11.086, compared with those with favorable lifestyle and low genetic risk. Moreover, approximately 32.7%, 95% C, 11.3-54.1, of IPF risk could be attributed to the interaction of an unfavorable lifestyle and high genetic risk. Interpretation Exposure to unfavorable lifestyle significantly increased the risk of IPF, particularly in those with high genetic risk. Cell-free DNA fragmentomes in the diagnostic evaluation of patients with symptoms suggestive of lung cancer. Background The diagnostic workup of individuals suspected of having lung cancer can be complex and protracted because conventional symptoms of lung cancer have low specificity and sensitivity. Research question Among individuals with symptoms of lung cancer, can a blood-based approach to analyze cell-free DNA, CFNA, fragmentation, the DNA evaluation of fragments for early interception, Delphi, SCORE, enhance evaluation for the possible presence of lung cancer? Study design and methods. Adults were referred to Bispebjerg Hospital, Copenhagen, Denmark, for diagnostic evaluation of initial imaging anomalies and symptoms consistent with lung cancer. Numbers and types of symptoms were extracted from medical records. CFNA from plasma samples obtained at the pre-diagnostic visit was isolated, sequenced, and analyzed for genome-wide CFNA fragmentation patterns. The relationships among clinical presentation, cancer status, and Delphi score were examined. Results A total of 296 individuals were analyzed. Median Delphi scores were higher for those with lung cancer, and equals 98, than those without cancer, and equals 198. 0.94 versus 0.19, p less than 0.001. In a multivariate model adjusted for age, smoking history, and presenting symptoms, the addition of the Delphi score improved the prediction of lung cancer for those who demonstrated symptoms, area under the receiver operating characteristic curve, 0.74 to 0.94. Interpretation The Delphi score distinguishes individuals with lung cancer from those without cancer better than suspicious symptoms do. These results represent proof-of-concept support that fragmentation-based biomarker approaches may facilitate diagnostic resolution for patients with concerning symptoms of lung cancer. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Sleep Apnea Physiological Burdens and Cardiovascular Morbidity and Mortality. Rationale, obstructive sleep apnea is characterized by frequent reductions in ventilation, leading to oxygen desaturations and or arousals. Objectives, in this study, association of hypoxic burden with incident cardiovascular disease, CVD, was examined and compared with that of ventilatory burden and arousal burden. Finally, we assessed the extent to which the ventilatory burden, visceral obesity, and lung function explain variations in hypoxic burden. Methods, hypoxic, 
ventilatory, and arousal burdens were measured from baseline polysomograms in the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, MESA, and the osteoporotic fractures in men, Mr. O.S., studies. Ventilatory burden was defined as event-specific area under ventilation signal, mean normalized, area under the mean and arousal burden was defined as the normalized cumulative duration of all arousals. The adjusted hazard ratios for incident CVD and mortality were calculated. Exploratory analyzes quantified contributions to hypoxic burden of ventilatory burden, baseline oxygen saturation as measured by pulse oximetry, visceral obesity, and spirometry parameters. Measurements and main results, hypoxic and ventilatory burdens were significantly associated with incident CVD, adjusted hazard ratio, 95% confidence interval, for 1 SD increase in hypoxic burden, MESA, 1.45, 1.14, 1.84, Mr. OS, 1.13, 1.02, 1.26, ventilatory burden, MESA, 1.38, 1.11, 1.72, Mr. OS, 1.12, 1.01, 1.25, whereas arousal burden was not. Similar associations with mortality were also observed. Finally, 78% of variation in hypoxic burden was explained by ventilatory burden, whereas other factors explained only less than 2% of variation. Conclusions, hypoxic and ventilatory burden predicted CVD morbidity and mortality in two population-based studies. Hypoxic burden is minimally affected by measures of adiposity and captures the risk attributable to ventilatory burden of obstructive sleep apnea rather than a tendency to desaturate. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Anti-PLA-2R are antibody levels and clinical risk factors for treatment non-response in membranous nephropathy. Background The 2021 Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes, K2GO, guidelines recommend following antiphospholipase A2 receptor, PLA-2R, antibody levels as a marker of treatment response in membranous nephropathy. However, the optimal timing to evaluate antibody levels and how to combine them with other clinical variables are currently unknown. Methods We used a cohort of 85 patients from the membranous nephropathy trial of rituximab, Mentor, with anti-PLA-2R antibodies greater than or equal to 14 ru ml to identify risk factors for not experiencing proteinuria remission after 12 months of treatment with cyclosporin or rituximab. Three landmark times were considered at baseline and after three and six months of treatment. Logistic regression model performance was evaluated using C-statistics and model fit, a kike information criterion, AIC, R2. Results. The model at baseline that best predicted no remission included anti-PLA-2 or antibodies greater than 323 ru ml and creatinine clearance. The best model after three months included the change from baseline in both antibody and albumin levels and the best model after six months included antibody levels greater than 14 ru ml, creatinine clearance, and the change from baseline in albumin. Compared with the model at baseline, the model at three months had better model fit, AIC 70.9 versus 96.4, R2 51.8% versus 30.1%, and higher C statistic, 0.93 versus 0.83, P equals 0.008. The model at 6 months had no difference in performance compared with the model at 3 months, 
AIC 68.6, R253.0%, C Statistic 0.94, P equals 0.67. Conclusions In patients with membranous nephropathy treated with cyclosporin or rituximab in the MENTOR trial, we found that the optimal method to evaluate risk factors for the probability of treatment response was to use anti-PLA-2 or antibody levels combined with albumin levels after three months of treatment, which was significantly better than using antibody levels alone or risk factor evaluation at baseline, with no added benefit of waiting until six months of treatment. Next article is from Kidney International. Implications of complete proteinuria remission at any time in focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, Sparsentan duet trial. Introduction. Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, FSGS, is a rare glomerular disease with high unmet clinical need. Interest in proteinuria as a surrogate endpoint for regulatory approval of novel treatments has increased. We assess the relationship between achieving complete remission, CR, of proteinuria at least once during follow-up and long-term kidney outcomes. Methods This post-hoc analysis included all patients enrolled in the duet trial of Sparsentan and FSGS and the open-label extension, OLE. Evaluations occurred every 12 weeks, including blood pressure, BP, edema, proteinuria, and kidney function. CR was defined as a urine protein slash creatinine ratio less than or equal to 0.3 grams slash G in a first morning urine sample. Results A total of 108 patients who received greater than or equal to one sparsentan dose were included in this study. During a median follow-up of 47.0 months, 46 patients, 43%, experienced greater than or equal to one CR, 61% occurring within 12 months of starting sparsentan. There was an increased likelihood of CR with a higher sparsentan dose or baseline subnephrotic range proteinuria. Achieving greater than or equal to 1 CR was associated with significantly slower rate of estimated glomerular filtration rate, ECFR, decline versus non-CR patients, P less than 0.05. Use of immunosuppressive agents was more frequent in patients who achieved a CR. However, the antiproteinuric effect of sparsentan was additive to that achieved with concomitant immunosuppressive treatment. No unanticipated adverse events occurred. Conclusion We conclude that sparsentan can be safely administered for extended periods and exerts a sustained antiproteinuric effect. Achievement of CR at any time during follow-up, even if it is not sustained, may be an indicator of a favorable response to treatment and a predictor of improved kidney function outcomes. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.